This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. A virus, acid wrapped in protein, a hundredth the breadth of a human hair, somewhere, likely Kansas, somehow, through the nose, the mouth, the cut, latches onto a healthy human cell and begins to duplicate itself. First between cells, then between surfaces, then to another person, then another, and another. It's unseen, exponential, unpredictable. Scoop up a bottle of seawater and you'll collect more viruses than there are people on the planet. Some are more dangerous than others, some are a help. They constantly evolve, changing their shape, evading the immune system, spreading through people and perfecting themselves. If by some magic, the tiny particles of saliva and mucus could be made visible as a black smudge, we quickly would realize in how many other ways we are apt to scatter bacteria and viruses all around us. Yes, even during an ordinary conversation, saliva and mucus particles escape our mouth and easily reach others who inhale them as they breathe. Next to the Nashua River in Lau County in Massachusetts, men from all over the country lumber. In 10 weeks, they build 1,400 huts, 2,200 showers, 60 miles of heating pipes, a bakery, a restaurant, a theatre, a post office. The camp houses 30,000 men from every corner of the United States. 40 others are built across the country. In Etaples, in northern France, a similar camp is built for 100,000 men, the largest of its type that's ever existed. One million people would pass through. These camps brought men together from different communities, rural and urban. In denser urban areas, the likelihood of catching contagious diseases is higher in childhood, thus giving immunity. In rural areas, this is less likely to be the case. In Camp Devons, Massachusetts, Etaples in France, and hundreds of other camps like them, viruses jumped around in a great petri dish of an experiment. First came the measles. One doctor reported that not a troop train came into Camp Wheeler in the fall of 1917 without bringing one to six cases of measles already in the eruptive stage. It quickly passed between those with no immunity. Then came the flu. In 1918, the global population was 1.7 billion. Within a year, up to a billion would be infected. 10 million had died in World War I, up to 100 million would die from the flu. That's as many as 1 in 17 people across the globe. The term Spanish flu was quickly adopted because Spain, being neutral in the war and having less restrictions on the press, was the first to report the disease. 
The Times in Britain blindly and erroneously reported that the dry, windy Spanish spring is an unpleasant and unhealthy season at all times. A spell of wet weather or of moist winds would probably check the progress of the epidemic. Some argue that the pandemic even changed the outcome of the war. 80% of all American war casualties were caused by influenza. When Russia withdrew from the war, Germany redirected a million men to the Western Front, giving the Germans superiority. They gained a thousand square miles of French territory and quickly reached the Marne River just 30 miles from Paris. A million people fled the capital. But then the flu struck, devastated the German army, and halted its advance. The Allies reorganized and pushed the Germans back, leading to the armistice and the end of the war. Despite the devastation that it caused and the influence it had, the Spanish flu was considered an addendum to World War I and was largely forgotten. Little was written of the pandemic in the novels of the era. Ironically, one of the greatest poets of war remembrance, John McRae, died not from a bullet, but from the virus. He wrote, in Flanders fields the poppies blow, between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place and in the sky, the lark still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. The pandemic, unlike the war, would not be commemorated. Poor Barbara, left for her the carefree hours of happy play. nor the busy hours of work and study. What has happened to her that she lies there so hot and feverish, so weak and dizzy, so miserable with suffering and pain? Like all historic memories, the cerebral impression of a virus can be erased from neurons or laid dormant the signifiers towards pathogens, the records of which lay idle in dusty books or in half-forgotten subconscious remembrances. Occasionally, they're called upon to answer questions about the past, to give assurances or warnings to the present. What happened? Why? What have we learnt? The story of the Spanish flu has been told. Instead, I want to ask not what happened, not to reconstruct it temporally or thematically, but instead ask what its memory might teach us. What can we draw out and learn that might help us today? Epidemics always call upon memories of the past, but always in new ways, always illuminated and shaped by the problems of the present. A virus strikes, how risky is it? Not too dangerous? Look at historic false alarms. Dangerous, taken for granted, ignored? Invoke the Spanish flu. The historian Patrick Zilberman writes that historical comparisons, as in 1918, appear more as a kind of seductive or intimidating trick than as a way of hunting down a useful analogy. So historic comparisons are often presented as choices, a palette of analogies to guide us. Memories drawn out, called upon. First, the memories are placed on trial. We are the jury. Where have you been? 
Why have you not been here to warn us? They try and reply, which ones of us? Whose memories? There were two groups primarily responsible for the response to the Spanish flu. The military and bacteriologists. The military denied the links between war manoeuvres and the spread of disease. In many countries, war departments were almost solely responsible for dealing with influenza. So much so that in France, for example, 80% of the country's 22,000 doctors were serving in the war. Historian Anne Rasmussen writes that a hybrid configuration of priorities guided hygienic interventions during the pandemic in which not only medical reason but also unstable knowledge, military logic and administrative practice were applied. Responses were guided by the need for military logic. Winning the war was more important than the flu. But medical reason guided choices too. In medicine, the laboratory had recently become dominant. But the enemy in this case is not big soldiers. This invading army is so tiny that it can be seen only through a microscope. Its soldiers are the germs of communicable disease. Some of these disease-causing organisms are so small that they cannot be seen even with the most powerful microscope. They are detected only because they can pass through the tiny holes of this filter. After the discovery of bacteria through the microscope and the confirmation of the germ theory of disease, the lab across the West was where advances were expected to be made. Scientists working on influenza thought they'd found its cause, a bacteria called Pfeiffer's bacillus discovered at the end of the 19th century. What they didn't know was that the bacteria was a secondary infection. The flu is caused by a virus. This wouldn't be confirmed until later in the 1930s, and the vaccines being worked on at the time would be useless. In France in 1918, the Under Secretary of State ordered all health service directors in regions of France to make bacteriological examinations as complete as possible for all influenza cases. By war, by experimentation in the wrong directions, time was wasted on a mass scale. And the waste was institutional. Disease is shaped by us, by our responses to it. Disease, then, is institutional. Lesson 1. Who is guiding the response? What might their own institutional goals be? Where are their blind spots? How do these institutions interact with each other? Historian Alana Lowy suggests that the Spanish flu's invisibility in history may be the result of the difficulty in constructing a narrative out of the failure to respond to it. If history is written by the victors, or rather recounting of historic moments, invisible history may be more important than what is popularly or frequently written about. The poor, the marginalised, the dead rarely have their voices memorialised. Whether the military or the bacteriologists, how likely is it that those that failed recorded and discussed the ways in which they failed? One of the scientists involved later recounted that, well, we were just 100% wrong, and it's a chapter I wish I had never written. Viruses try to kill history, silence its victims, shame those who fail into not responding. 
Viruses aren't just a scientific or a biological problem then. They're a historical one. As historian Niall Johnson writes, influenza, or any other virus, cannot be studied in a vacuum. They must be considered in their normal environment, as it's the environment that provides the evolutionary pressure and stimulus that drives evolution, the stimulus that provides the need for change and the need for a survival advantage. George Hutchinson wrote in 1965 that evolutionary play must be studied in the ecological theatre. And of course, this theatre is also material. At the outermost points of our large harbours, the United States quarantine stations stand guard over the health of our country. From sunrise to sunset, medical officers are on duty to inspect the ships arriving from foreign ports so that sickness or disease cannot enter this land. The doctor and the sanitary inspector leave at six in the morning to examine the ships that have arrived during the night. The quarantine stations are under the United States Public Health Service in Washington, and the procedure is the same in all ports. The officers know in advance which ships are due to arrive. Before the inspection, they study the health records of these ships and also health conditions in the ports the ships have visited since their last American inspection. These institutions responded to the material conditions through which the virus spread. It spread both quickly and slowly. On September the 23rd, 1918, the first case was reported in San Francisco. One month later, 75% of the nurses were sick and all of the hospital beds full. A British nurse later recounted that it happened so suddenly. In the morning, we received an order to open up a new unit for flu and by night, we'd moved into a converted convent. Almost before the desks were out, the stretchers were in, 60, 80 to a classroom. We could hardly squeeze between the cots, and oh, they were so sick. The SS Talun, though, was later described as a death ship that slowly delivered the pandemic to islands in the South Pacific, one by one. Transport, mostly ships and trains, delivered the flu both geographically and hierarchically. Epidemiologists suggest that viruses usually spread in two ways, hierarchically, as the disease spreads across a country in different stages, and contagiously, as it spreads throughout neighborhoods, personally, between people. You can hierarchize types of spread. Urban areas will be quicker because of density. Ports, airports, train stations, etc. are also at the top of the hierarchy. In Britain, a doctor wrote that the spread of disease along the lines of railway from London to Southend, Epping, Waltham, Colchester and Cambridge to overcrowding in railway carriages, and while this continues, it's useless to ask people not to attend churches, cinemas and meetings where they do not get half so much crowded together as on the railway. The Times reported in Britain that the ports were first involved. Next, the disease reached London, to which no doubt it was brought by travellers in the through trains. From London, it radiated again, visiting Birmingham, Nottingham and other centres. It's still raging at full fury in the smaller country districts which have now become involved. This suggests staggered interventions based on predictable patterns. We know where it will hit first. We know who it will hit first. So lesson two. 
viruses interact with the material world environmentally, not just with people. What can the distribution of transport hubs, global cities, and different stages of diffusion tell us about how a virus will predictably spread? Can this help us predict the future? In pandemics, we resort to fences, psychological and physical. Quarantine has often been a first resort. At the naval base in San Francisco, they quarantine all 4,000 men for nine weeks, quote, forbidding all liberty, sterilizing drinking fountains hourly with blowtorches, compelling new trainees to exist 20 feet apart from one another. One village in New Zealand kept people and the virus at bay with vigilantes armed with shotguns. Ultimately, though, quarantine was seen as a poor strategy. Cordoning off entire villages, cities and countries might slightly delay an outbreak, but is ineffective against viruses that number in the billions. Somehow, they'll creep in. One man remembered in 1988 that father was selected as the health officer. We had never had a health officer in our town before, but we felt now that we needed one, so dad went out to the city limit sign, I went with him, and we put a sign that said, this town is quarantined, do not stop. So we had purposely isolated ourselves, but it wasn't enough. The disease came anyway. The mailman brought it. But while quarantine to keep the virus out might be ineffective, socially distancing was not only effective, but one study found that those areas that intervened earlier recovered faster economically after. This is consistent with studies on epidemics that show that early public health interventions reduce overall mortality rates. Local governments and cities, notably not at a federal or national level, banned mass gatherings, closed schools, theatres and churches, and studies show that where this was done, lives were saved. Cities that enforced social distancing policies sooner saw their economies proving better after the pandemic was over. Lesson 3. Keeping influenza out is difficult and costly. Slowing its spread is more effective. But enforcing public health measures came with risks too. Racism, othering and blame, of course, were widespread. Minorities, the poor, the marginalised were hardest hit and often disproportionately affected in sometimes surprising ways. In Britain, the government mostly left planning and restrictions to local authorities. There was, though, one exception. Cinemas where government restricted the length of showings and imposed regulations for ventilation. But this, rather than being based on science, was a product of class bias over the immorality of cinemas. One commentator at the time wrote that the cinema was the greatest enemy of the epoch to intellectual culture, it being a reflection of lower stages of evolution, the shiftiness of the monkey, the film star and the imbecile, one local council inexplicably declared that although we are alive to the possibility that a certain amount of infection is spread through theatres, music halls, churches and chapels, we consider that a great deal more of the risk of infection is to be ascribed to the cinema. So ideology skewed official responses, but ideas and cultures were changed too as a result of the pandemic. Across Africa, for example, many saw the pandemic as being God's punishment for turning to the false religion of the white man. Many communities turned back to their traditional religions. 
and some have argued that this speeded up decolonization later. In South Africa, though, the case has been made that the restrictions put in place sped up the path towards apartheid. Lesson 4. Cultural and ideological beliefs both direct our response, often poorly, and are changed by pandemics. Today's children will grow up in a world increasingly free of infectious disease. Someday, we may completely be free of it. But that's not likely in your lifetime, or in theirs. Ultimately, though, there is a theme that runs through memories of the Spanish flu. Failure. The historian Niall Johnson sums up Britain's failure like this. The perception of disease, the fact that it was only influenza, the relatively mild nature of the first wave in the spring of 19, imperialist or racist views and the superiority of the English, the confidence in scientific medicine to find a vaccine, the quest for professional status of the profession, the power of scientific medicine prevailing over preventative, and the rejection of state intervention. Many of these contributed to a delay in the reaction and recognition of the existence of a problem, particularly when the second wave arrived in the autumn of 1918. The lack of planning, hesitance, a hubris, repressed memory, and cultural arrogance. So, how might we summarise our lessons? How might we learn from viruses of the past? It is difficult to summarise these lessons without being trite. The central one is that pandemics are a human problem, and humans change over time. There are no singular lessons. Rather, aphorisms from past experiences of pandemics should not be buried in the historical record, but memorialised commemorated, ready to be accessed, a warning from the past, a guide for effective critique, when the next virus inevitably comes. Protect yourself against infection. Keep pencils and other things out of your mouth. Never take bites of other people's food. Do not use somebody else's drinking straw or glass. If you like these videos, I need your help, and here's my request. If you think you get the same value from four of these videos as you do from just one cup of coffee, then please consider pledging just a dollar per video. That's three to four dollars per month to keep this channel going. You can even limit your pledge to one dollar a month, and if you pledge five dollars, I'll add your name to the credits. To those that already support then and now, thank you so much. This channel just wouldn't exist without you. You can also hit like, share, follow me on Twitter and Facebook, etc. All of these things really contribute to helping then and now grow. Thanks for watching and see you next week.